chapter 12. We're going to reread the last verse that we read where we kind of left off with uh, chapter uh, 12, verse 36, and we'll read uh, verse 36 again, and then we'll read 36 through uh, the end of the chapter. So if your Bibles are open, John chapter 12, verse 36, which we read last week, we'll, we'll read it again here this morning. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of of light, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs, verse 37, before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and harden their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Very sad. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Aren't you glad? Amen. He who rejects me does not receive my words. Um, he who rejects me and does not receive my words, which uh, that has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Let's pray again. Father, we take your word now. And Lord, we ask that you would magnify it for your glory. But Lord, that you would speak to us for our change and our transformation and our humbling and our correction, and Lord, our encouragement. Lord, you know what each person needs. Lord, help me to do what you asked me to do. Just simply set the table. Feed each sheep, Lord, by your Spirit what you know they need. And Lord, I know that I need your help, your strength, and your anointing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you look at this fading scene, going back to verse 36, because we finished with verse 36 last week, Jesus had given yet another public invitation to believe on him. Expressing that there is this pervasive darkness that represents the natural condition of our hearts and represents the course of this world. The world is a dark place but for God. Amen? Amen. 
which is in this world is led by the ruler of darkness. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. He's unseen, but we certainly see evidence of what he is doing. It's very obvious when you watch the death, the destruction, and the mayhem, and the school shootings, and just the debauchery of mankind in general. And we see it not just now, but century after century after century. It's not new. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus stated that this same darkness, the darkness, the spiritual darkness, if you will, will eventually overtake the person that resists the light of God. I don't want the light of God. Eventually they will be overtaken by darkness. And then we say, how could someone become a serial killer? They're completely overtaken by darkness. Complete darkness. No compass at all. You know when you have a compass, you actually know which way you're going. But when you have no compass, you don't care about anything. Jesus tells us this darkness can overtake someone if they reject the light that is given in the form of his word. And of course, the living word himself came down out of heaven. And in this final verse uh, from our last week, uh, moving to this week, from that uh, verse 36, which transitions the remainder of chapter 12 here, we see that the window of time to believe in the light is closing. Now, while Jesus was there, the window of light was closing for everyone that was in his presence. The window of time was closing to believe or not believe. Looking back at verse 36, where Jesus says, believe on the light while you have the light. That window of time is still closing, even right now, today, for anyone who has seen the light of Christ, but so far has closed the door, ignored it. We're only given so many opportunities in this lifetime to embrace the light and the truth of Christ. And praise God, many of you here, many of you online, you're out of town and uh, whatever, many believers we know, I have other friends in this city that go to other churches, many of them, have run to the light, and they have been forever changed. Whether they're Calvary Chapel or Baptist Church or Presbyterian or whatever, if they've been saved, they have been changed forever. And in doing so, they've not only been saved by the grace of God, but they've entered into an immediate personal relationship with Jesus. Personal. He's your God. He's your Savior. Not a Savior. Your Savior. Through the light and salvation of the Son. It all comes through the light of the world, Jesus himself. But the warning here, it can't be overstated. God's, God's light is eternal life. Darkness is eternal death. There's not a third option. Time and free will places every single soul in a place of decision. And for me, and I pray for everyone else here, the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I have sung that, self, that song to myself many times. 
It's as strong in my mind today as it was 27 years ago when I came to Christ. Because if we saw the light of Christ and we've come to his light, then we know that his saving light and his life has come into us. It's not just a light that's outside that we were drawn to. His light is now on the inside. And if that light is in us, guess what? We're going to want to walk in the light. It's not a burden like I told the first service um, 28 years ago when me and my wife got married. We got married on a Saturday, which would, like yesterday, you only get in our 28 years, there's only four times because you've got to wait every seven years till our wedding date falls on the exact same kind of weekend scale that it was Memorial Day weekend 28 years ago. So we got married on a Saturday. But it was early Sunday morning and we had a headache because too much champagne and all this other stuff. And we had a flight to catch to Florida. And I would never have guessed, getting on that flight unsaved, didn't know Jesus, that 28 years later I'd be standing in this pulpit. <laughs> the Sunday morning after. But I wouldn't be getting up early with a headache. I was getting up early to pray this morning. Amen. Amen. But that's what the light inside does. It's totally different. It changes everything. And when you have the light inside, you want to walk in the light. You're not like, it's not a burden for you to walk with Jesus. You want to walk with Christ. We have no interest in returning to the blindness of the past or the darkness of the past. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Seeing and Walking in the Light. So with Jesus here, ending this chapter, we have him now giving. It's kind of his final altar call, if you will. With Jesus giving such an earnest proclamation and plea, starting in verse 36 and all the way through, that while you have the light, believe in the light while you have been presented it. And then the new birth, which goes back to John chapter 3, then you become sons of the light, daughters of the light. But John the Apostle here, he takes note that with all the supernatural evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, some there, John's looking at, he's, he's probably awestruck, some of them still refused to believe. Absolutely refused. You're taking notes. Just two points this morning. The first one, which I've titled Deepening Blindness. That you actually go from blind to blinder. I know that's not really a word, but anyway. Gets the point across. You know, in this age, we can make up words all the time. People do it now, especially for social media. Any word you want, just make it up. So I, I kind of like that. So somebody had to make up all the words. So blinder is now officially in the list. So, um, but look at verse 37. He says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled. Remember that the entire book of John by way of review, is John the Apostle's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, what he saw with his own eyes. The next eight chapters, we've talked about this in previous weeks, the next eight chapters will consist of Jesus' final week leading up to the cross, then the resurrection, and then a few scenes in the 40 days post 
resurrection. That is the totality of the next eight chapters. Now, in addition to some duplicate accounts and details from the other three synoptic gospels, John gives additional details, additional insight, additional commentary of his own, exclusive to the book of John. And these next seven verses are one such occasion, and a very important one. John, again, he's observed this scene in the temple with his own eyes. Jesus speaking, one final altar call, if you will, which he's repeated. It's kind of like the altar call where the pastor says, I'm going to say it again, I'm going to say it again. Jesus has done that. He is, again, again, I'm the light, I'm the light, believe on me, believe on me, while you have the light. And John observes this, and he sees the blatant rejection of, of the life and witness of Christ in the face of unprecedented signs and miracles. It's stunning to John that people would not believe in Jesus after all that they have seen. Even this week, remember, he healed people in the temple that very week. The Greek phrase that John uses, tosata semia, means both many or not just many, so many and so great. So his miracles were so many, voluminous, and so great, marvelous. They would be impossible to miss. It's kind of like I put two cubes up there. One represents the life and miracles of Jesus. It would dwarf the landscape. It would be like saying that you were right. It was a clear day, like... First time I saw Mount Rainier, I mentioned it to you guys out in Seattle. It'd be like me saying, I don't see that mountain. You, you couldn't miss it. It's the only thing you could see on the landscape. When it appeared, you just, it dwarfed everything else. It made the skyscrapers of Seattle look tiny. The life and ministry of Jesus, similar. And not just compared to anyone else, but compared to even the most godly men that ever walked the face of the earth. The ministry of Jesus compared to Moses would make Moses look like nothing. Yet literally nothing moved these unbelieving hearts. It's like they said, nothing to see here. Everyone raises people from the dead. Who can't do that, right? Everyone feeds thousands. Everyone walks on water. Everyone does all these things. And by the Spirit's leading, John chooses this moment right here in this kind of climactic altar call from Jesus, if you will, he chooses this moment of refusal and rejection to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And of course, the Holy Spirit is leading him to quote here from the prophet Isaiah. This quote from Isaiah is the only time this passage appears in any of the four Gospels. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Isaiah's original message was true of the ancient religious leaders and their rejection of Isaiah's witness when he said he saw the glory of of the Lord, which he, of course, had. God had taken him in and seen his glory. And now with the cross just days away, Isaiah's lament, Isaiah's warning, his proclamation has a greater prophetic fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, but the rabbinical writings tell us that Isaiah the prophet was martyred by being sawn in two. They literally sawed him in two while alive. Hebrews 11 documents that 
One prophet was sawn in two. The rabbinical writings tell us that that prophet was Isaiah. They're going to receive Jesus the same way. We see it, history repeating itself. As they rejected Isaiah, they will reject Jesus. We talked about this last week. Evidence leads us to faith, but evidence in and of itself is not faith. I've seen all the evidence. That doesn't mean you have faith. Each person must respond to the truth and the evidence of Jesus with faith and a humbling of ourselves. To this point, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, as it was in Isaiah's day, they have refused. And we see a dangerous transition from verse 38 through verse 40. He says, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. That's a problem. But because Isaiah the prophet said again, He, who is he? God. He has blinded their eyes. Hold on a second. God blinds people? It says they wouldn't believe, then they couldn't believe. God blinds their eyes and hardens their heart, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Dangerous turn here. Understand that God's grace, it is great. It is amazing. His grace is immeasurable. But the opportunity to receive great is not an infinite amount of time. There is sand going through the hourglass for every person. God's grace is immeasurable, but the time to receive it is not immeasurable. It is measurable. There's a dash between your born date and end date, right? And they, in Isaiah's day, they refused to believe him to the point they had him killed. They refused God. Then God refused them. I know that that's not popular in American pulpits today, but God hasn't changed. Right, right. He's still the same. Right. He's still holy. He's still just. And then it will repeat with Jesus. They will refuse Jesus, and Jesus will eventually refuse them. I talked about that for our own country. I mean, if our country continues to refuse God, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves if God says, I now refuse you. Right. Uh, by the way, many people, I've, I've heard people go on tirades about God. If he's, he's a tyrant, he's this, he's, he's a tyrant, he's mean. If he, why, why would he send people to hell and all this stuff? The more you know God, you realize that God is perfect and holy and just. And any, any weird thinking we have is on us, not on him. Like, it's because we have a sin nature, we can misinterpret who God is. But once you're saved, you, you say, Lord, even if I don't understand it, I'm positive you're 100% right and pure and righteous. And my puny thinking is probably the problem here. Not probably, definitely. Always. Matthew Henry said... Christ justly removes the means of grace from those that quarrel with him. You don't get to battle with God forever. You can only shake your fist so many times before he says, that's it. Proverbs 29, 11, 
He who is often rebuked, often, and hardens his neck, no matter how many times he rebukes, says, I don't care, I'm not listening. Proverbs chapter 1 talks about uh, this as well. And hardens his neck will be suddenly destroyed, and that without remedy. There is a line in the sand with, with the Lord. We know that the extension of grace, we know it has an ending point for everybody because we know everyone what? Dies. So with death, we know that there's not an opportunity. So we know that there is an ending point. That, that Again, grace is immeasurable, but the time to receive it has a specified time per person. But we know that grace, if you re- rejected Christ all the way to the point of death, that would end your opportunity. But the scriptures seem to indicate that it can actually happen before dying. This certainly appears to be the case with Pharaoh. He kept hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart, and God says, I'll harden your heart. You don't want me? I'll go ahead and give you what you want. You want a world without me? You can have an eternity without me. Seems to happen with Judas, where at some point, Judas is now rejected by the Lord. After many, many times of, many times of having the opportunity to come by grace. Only God knows when is when. Only God knows when is when. Um, I have heard pastors preach this, and I totally understand the point, because if I go to a hospital and someone is on their deathbed, I'm going to present the gospel to them. I have no idea if they've rejected eight million times, if they've passed their time. If they're, I'm not God. I'm going to present the gospel to anyone that's breathing. But the doctrine that if someone's breathing, they can absolutely receive Christ is not necessarily scriptural because it does seem to indicate that there comes a time where God says, no, I've already hardened their heart. You've passed the point. And I don't know where that is for everybody. Only God knows that. So our job is still to present the gospel regardless. But I would be remiss if I said, look, the scripture seemed to indicate, I won't be dogmatic on the point, but the scripture seems to indicate that a person could forego at some point, even before death, even the capacity. Now, we, we, we have a book of Revelation example of this. The Bible says if you get the mark of the beast, you can't be saved. And by the way, you're still breathing and still living. Right, right, right. So we know that there's a doctrinal point to be made in the book of Revelation. It almost is kind of supporting the things that we've seen in other passages prior to that. That's an outward visible sign. This person is beyond salvation now. It's literally, when you get the mark of the beast, you'll be selling your soul at that point. So, take those things for what they're worth. It's just, again, we're just observing what the scriptures say, and we have to say, Lord, thank you for your grace for me personally. You know, that, you know just let God be God. It appears that any person that willingly puts, you know, if, you're, if you're not blind and you walk around like this, you might as well be blind, Right? But if you, it appears in a spiritual sense that you could do this for so long and God, he says, oh, I'm going to take them off now and still be blind all of a sudden. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, you guys, some of you guys remember Bible Bus on the radio. Oh, yeah. Dr. J. Vernon McGee. This was him preaching. I'm going to read it verbatim. They rejected Jesus personally. Listen to me carefully. I don't have his Texas accent here. Because they would not accept him, there came the day when they could not accept him. God is God, and he it is that has the final word. 
God's not going to ever apologize to anybody for his justice. For his saying, no, no, no. You'll never, no one will stand before God and say, you were unfair. That will not happen at the great world. People will ask for mirth. They'll say, I, I blew it. I, but God in his time, he, he's the one that gives your end date for life and also for coming to Jesus. The point is to respond to the truth and the sacrifice and the love and the grace of Jesus now. Not later. Now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Verse 41, look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. So uh, John is referring back to when the prophet Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. And Isaiah's testimony, let me ask you a question. Was Was Isaiah's testimony when he saw the glory of God, was it pointing to Yahweh, God the Father, or the coming God in the flesh? Yes. Yes. It was pointing to both. Because it has a prophetic greater fulfillment here in Jesus. That it was, it was, he saw the glory of God, but he also saw the glory of God coming as the Son of God. Now praise God, many that were there in the temple and there hearing Jesus did believe the witness of Jesus. Many were drawn to him. Pick it up with me as we look at our second and final point this morning. Walk in the light in verse 42. Nevertheless, many among, even, I'm sorry, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. But nevertheless, many believed. When it comes to the light of Christ, John makes clear that some, we know that some patently refused to believe what Jesus had to say, and that he was, they refused it even to believe he came from God. They ignored the miracles. Their hearts were just completely hardened. Refused. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They were just like an atheist today. Yet there was a group, there was a group, even among the rulers, even among the religious leaders, that did believe they were convinced that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were drawn to the light of Jesus. They were drawn to it like a moth is to the light when you turn it on this summer. But the question is, had the light come in and changed them? They were drawn to the light, but had they been changed by the light. Was the light now on the inside, not just on the outside? They weren't like the ones that rejected. They believed the witness of Jesus. Only God knows how many or who. There's various viewpoints on this passage from among godly believers down through. By the way, there's various viewpoints on what I just talked about as well. And again, some of these things we won't really kind of understand until we get to heaven. Amen? Some things God has left pretty un- clear. And I believe on purpose. And I I, I could, that's a whole other, why would he, that's a different topic. But here, there are various viewpoints among godly believers for the last 2,000 years on what does this mean that they believed in Jesus, but they were afraid to let anyone know they believed in Jesus. What does that tell us? Had they really been changed? Now we can know fairly, we can know fairly certainly that 
one man in this group, Nicodemus, absolutely believed that Jesus was the Son of God, absolutely believed he was the Messiah and the Savior, but as yet was hiding it, and no one knew. I don't even know if his spouse knew yet he believed in Jesus. He was a secretly believing Christian at this time. We also know, though, that Jesus came and he told us in the Gospels that we would not be given his light to then hide it, to put it under a bushel, right? Right. So we know that Jesus said, I have not given you the light of salvation that you then keep it a big secret. He already said back in verse 25, same chapter 12 here, back in verse 25, and you can note it down or look at it. Remember he said back in verse 25, same temple discussion, he said that anyone that tried to hold on to their lives was going to lose it. Anyone try, then anyone who's willing to lose their life for his name's sake would save their life. He's talking about the soul, that they did not, they don't care about their reputation anymore. They don't care if their family thinks they're weird. They don't care if they're cut off from the inheritance. I've seen people with all of those things. This also, but it underscores um, that even though these men still wanted the praise of men and they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue and afraid what it was going to cost them. This also underscores if some of them are truly saved, the making of disciples, not the making of sinners' prayers. Even when I ask for people to pray, we're not focused on the fact that, hey, if they pray to prayer, no. If they don't want to be discipled, that's a big problem. Now we're called to make disciples and discipleship moves us from the fear of this world into the fear of the Lord and into the love of the Lord. That's why young believers need to be just like a newborn baby. A newborn baby needs to be cared for. Young believers need to be cared for. Discipleship is very important. William Barclay had this to say, secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms. Either the secrecy kills the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. When you get saved and you say, I I really do believe in Jesus, but I'm afraid to let anyone know about it. I don't want to lose all my friends. That's normal to have that response. That's not unusual. You need to be discipled to grow past that. To get past that. Now, some people are bold as a lion out of day, as right out of the gate. There's not, not everyone's the Apostle Paul day one. But even he had like 12, 13 years of getting girded up. We don't, most people don't seem to know that. He was bold in Syria, but we don't know if he stayed bold, if he kind of flamed out in a couple of weeks and needed a long time, about a decade plus, to get built up to be the apostle God had called him to be. But again, discipleship will kill the secrecy because discipleship roots you in Christ. And once you get rooted in Christ, you're feeding off of him instead of the fear and all the things of the world. The discipleship process strengthens the believer. But also the discipleship process, when you actually go to disciples, it gives them an exit door if they say, I don't want this. Like Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Gives an exit door. You find out, hey, that person doesn't want to be discipled at all. I can't even get them to read one verse. They don't want any of this. Well, maybe there's not yet born again. 
So we, you know, Billy Graham said that for years. He said, they said, Billy Graham, did everyone, did everyone walk the aisle? Did they all get saved? He said, time will tell. Right? Time will tell. Do they get discipled? Do they want to be discipled? Now some are dogmatic. Some scholars are convinced that all of these are believers. Some are convinced that these are silent believers, totally saved, born again. Others are convinced, no, 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 these are people that are on the path of salvation. They definitely are being drawn to Christ, but they've not yet fully come into faith. Some believe that they're not born again, and some believe it's a combination. There you go. There's all four views of who these secret believers might be. But how do we kind of like look at the scriptures and, and kind of ascertain what God would have us to, you know, again, it's not our job to figure all these things out, but it is our job to be good Bereans and to study what does the word say. And back in verse 25, again, if Jesus said, he who's willing to forfeit his life will save it for my name, that's a pretty good clue that God, through Christ, is saying, I want you to let people know you're with me now. Amen. That you identify with me. Then we have Paul's writing in Romans chapter 10. Look what Paul says. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now we know that the salvation starts in the heart. It's in the heart, the mind believing, say, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe I need a Savior, and I believe I am a sinner, and therefore that's the believing on Christ. That starts in the heart. You have to think through it, believe it for yourself. No one else can make that decision for you. But then the mouth, there is a uttering and we know that this is not even necessarily, what if somebody was born mute and they couldn't utter a sound? God hears that voice. So it's not just the audible voice, it's the expression to God. Does that make sense? But also the expression outwardly. So then we have the question, what Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, does the confession of the mouth begin at salvation or does that flow from salvation? Yes. Before you all upon yes. It does begin at salvation and it certainly flows from salvation as well. The confession of the mouth. I'm still confessing with the mouth years after being saved. Amen? But I also had a confession at the point of, Lord, I confess. Here's the confession. I confess I need you. I confess my sin. I confess I need a Savior, not a Savior, but the Savior. So many have come. Now, you think about like this, this secret Christian group that, that John is observing that many have believed in him, but they were afraid of being cast out. Um, does that mean they're saved or are they not saved? Many people have come to Jesus all alone. Amen? People have, I've heard testimonies, I was riding the car, I was listening to a pastor, so, so and so on the radio, I pulled the car over, prayed to receive Christ, and I've never been the same since. I've heard people, I got a Gideon's Bible, out of the hotel uh, drawer, I read it, got saved there, nobody was there to hear it. It's like if a tree falls in the forest, right, you know? No one hears it. Did it really fall? Yes, it fell. Yes, and so, if somebody gets saved in a hotel room, they get saved and no one's there but God. They weren't 
They, have, they don't have a public altar call like, like I had. So there's many believers have been saved while all alone. Then is the confession that Paul's speaking of, is he talking about a private confession or a public confession? Again, I'd say yes, because many people's first confession is just to God. Well, everyone's first confession is to God. Even if you come on an altar call, you're not praying to the pastor, you're not praying to the evangelist, you're praying to God. Amen? Right? That no, one, no man saved you. All we do is deliver the mail. So everyone's confession is first to God, whether it was public or private, whether it was in a public setting or a very private setting, you all own your car, but I'd say yes again uh, on that. We certainly see both and people coming to know the Lord. I don't believe, though, if a person really is saved, if they become born again, if they now have the light on the inside, not just drawn to light, but they have been changed by the light of Christ, uh, I don't believe if they're physically alive, and they remain alive, that they would be perpetually silent the rest of their life and not be willing to tell anybody that they know Jesus. That's, that doesn't seem to be uh, seeing the word. It's certainly the case with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was kind of a secret Christian here, but was he by the time he got to the cross? No. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. That's a very public, like, he put his life on the line uh, at that point. Uh, his boldness grows as his faith in Christ grows. And that's good for, for all of us here to know that uh, what God wants to do in the life of a believer, if you say, I, I want to be bold, but I just am petrified. of even God wants you to take baby steps. To first you believe, then you abide, then you grow in boldness. First you believe, then you abide, then you grow in boldness. By the way, this pattern never changed. No matter how many years you've been on the earth, you will still keep doing this. Lord, I believe this. Help me to abide in this. And then he produces that fruit of boldness. Jesus said that eventually, if you're his disciple, guess what's going to pop out? Fruit that's visible. Fruit that's visible. People will know truly that is a believer. And Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, speaking of a public confession here, therefore whoever confesses me before men... Him I will confess before my Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus confessing my name before the Father. I definitely want him to say, Tim belongs to me. I don't want to say to people, in the, I don't know Jesus. All religions are the same as far as I can tell. Please don't love me. I, want to be, I don't want to be thought as narrow-minded. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. That's a pretty straight shot truth from Jesus. So what do we conclude with this group? Well, my personal view for what it's worth and may not be worth much, when taking into account the whole counsel of God and what Jesus says next, it says, notice what John says. He says, nevertheless, those many believed in him. And then Jesus says in the next verse, verse 44, he says, he who believes in me. John says believes in him. Then Jesus says, those who believe in me, I think when you take in the context of what he said before, what he says here, that some in this group, this is not all that conclusive, right? Some in this group are absolutely saved and they will become public believers, public confessors of Christ. But some in this group 
probably are what we might would consider taste testers like the rich young ruler that ultimately will choose the world. I believe there's both in that group. They're all drawn. They all, they're not like the Pharisees that don't believe at all. The rich young ruler absolutely believed Jesus was the Savior. He could not let go of his possessions. And at some point, God will tell this group, you're going to have to not worry about getting kicked out of the synagogue anymore. At some point, I, the Holy Spirit is very gentle. When I first got saved, I was still bartending. And I could not give up. Because I could not believe how my bills could get paid. I did it for a year. I was in torment. Here's another bourbon and ginger for you. you know, and, I, and Then I started witnessing to people at the bar. That was not good for business. <laughs> but it was good for my soul. And, and, then, and I had one guy say, I could not sleep all night last night because you told me all that stuff about hell and everything else. You know, I don't want another drink tonight. You know. <laughs> So then I, then I had the faith finally to step away. But I do believe God gives a grace period, even to new believers, to kind of get rid of the stuff. And that happens. It's clear that to believe in Jesus, looking at verse 44, believe, he mentions it here, believe again, he mentions believe so many times, but is required as a starting point to salvation. You must believe. And believing in God the Father is not to believe Jesus said you'll see the Father through him. It's believing who God says he is, not our self-made or the American-made image of God. It's definitely not the God I see. And I want to thank God and, you know, a bunch of sinful things at the Grammys, you know? No, no, no. I don't know who your God is, but it's not the God of the Bible. Verse 45 he says, and he who sees me uh, sees him who sent me. Uh, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Jesus, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In fact, the only way to see God is through the light of Christ. And then in verse 46, um, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. A life that is changed in response to genuine faith, in response to the light of the world, it starts with belief, but again, that, to go back to what I said a few minutes ago, that belief will then, because you've had the light inside, and you resonate with Christ, you say, I want to abide in Christ, and then that abiding in Christ, which is found in John 6, 56, and John 15, verses 4 through 5, then will grow into maturity, maturity into boldness, and to caring what God thinks, and less about what man thinks. This is what it means to walk in the light. Jesus expresses in John chapter 8, and again here in John chapter 12, that we are to walk in the light. And it's also worth noting that Isaiah the prophet uh, also said this as well. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah's ministry foreshadowed the ministry of Jesus. Many ministries in the Old Testament foreshadow the ministry. Uh, we know that, for example, Joseph's ministry foreshadowed. Moses' ministry foreshadowed. But it's very interesting that Jesus, uh, or John quotes from Isaiah, and we know John, Isaiah also said to walk in the light of the Lord. Um, to walk in the light of the Lord is the exact opposite of abiding in darkness. Because if you abide in darkness, it's nothing but stumbling to walk in the light of the Lord is to walk circumspect. Because now that light is not just in front of us, which 
His word is a lamp unto our feet, but the light is inside of us as well. And then in verse 47, Jesus gives a final warning here. In verse 47, he says, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, so you have the choice to believe or not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him at the last day. So Jesus is saying, he's not come at this point to judge. Not this point. This week he's come to do what? Die as a sacrificial lamb. He's not come to set up the judgment yet. But that will come. But he said that the words he spoke here will judge everyone there at the end of the age. Because they'll be accountable for everything he said. And those words will judge them in that day. What a sad thing that will be. Sadly, anyone that remains in darkness, Jesus is given this opportunity to come out of darkness into light, anyone that remains in darkness will tragically join the ruler of the world who's in darkness, and everyone will be cast into outer darkness, just as Jesus said back in verse 31, that he was the ruler of this world will be cast out. And it's not just cast out, it's cast into the lake of fire. But we know this is not God's desire. Because a lot of people, again, they, they get really upset that God would do this. I'm like, well, I believe God, every word he says, even the things I don't understand, I believe. And when he says this of himself, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. Guess how many any is? Any should perish but that all should come to repentance. When we pray for repentance, we get on our knees, we're praying the heart of God. He desires repentance. He desires Nineveh-type moments where everyone turns. It's been well said, we're either going to pray for his will, or he's going to give us our own will. And if we get our own will, so I don't want God, then you get that eternity without God. Tragic. Horrible, which brings us to these closing two verses, verses 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me, and he gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. With these closing two verses, Jesus asserts that every word and every portion that he has proclaimed and presented was provided to him by the Father. And by the way, if Jesus is submissive to the will of the Father, shouldn't we be? Amen. Of course we should. And then in verse 50, Jesus, obedient to the single word of the Father, he expresses the Father's command of eternal life. Which begs the final question. It's not a trick question. Because I've only answered it one way so you would know how to answer this. The final question this morning. Through Jesus, is God the Father commanding us to come to salvation or offering us salvation? Yes! Therefore, God commands men to repent. But he also extends salvation. There's the commanding. I, I gave the example in the first service. If a parent calls the kids down for dinner, it's both a command and a request. Right? At least it was in the 70s. Come to dinner meant come to dinner. Right, 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 right. 
Not later. But you didn't have to, it didn't say come with a $50 check. It was gift that you had to receive. Right? A command and a request. But eternal life is a lot better than that, right? The command of eternal life. But these closing words, all through uh, verse 44, all the way down to 50, it sums up the paradox. I'll close with this. It sums up the paradox found throughout the whole book of John. The whole book of John has this paradox that Christ came in love, but he will come in judgment. Right. He came in love, but he will come in judgment. That's the paradox. Because God is all love and all righteousness. I can't speak for myself, but I am, I can speak for myself. I'll only speak for myself. But I'm glad that he came personally for me. And that I'm not on an airplane hungover this morning, but here Amen. by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that your light really does change lives. And Jesus, you've not said these things to condemn. You've said these things to convict. And to open eyes and to soften hearts for you're not willing that any should perish. You've warned that hearts wouldn't be hardened. That you would not have to give people their own will. But Lord, we would die to our will and receive your will, which is eternal life. The command and the gift of salvation. With our heads bowed, if there's even one here before we close, if there's even one that says, I heard that for me and I want to receive gift of God's salvation. Raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Like I said, it's not my prayer or even leading you in a prayer, but if there's anyone at all, I just want to pray with you that you would come to Jesus. We would delay for you. God would delay for you. Anyone at all. Don't want to take for granted that we all have come to light. But if you have, say, Lord, I don't want to be as secretive as I am. I, and I, We all have a little bit of secret Christian in us. Right? We all have less boldness than, than we desire to have. And say, Lord, it goes back to me believing what you said, standing on what you said, abiding on what you said, and Lord, then the growth, then the maturity, then the boldness will come.